0: Well, good morning, Baylife. Would you do me a courtesy turn in your Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. We're in verses 26 to 38. And I realize that some of us here are new to the Bible and new to Christianity, and so maybe some helpful background for you about the text that we're about to read. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was written by someone named Luke. But we know a little bit more about him than that. He's actually mentioned several times in the New Testament as a companion of the Apostle Paul. And so he was an early believer who traveled with Paul and helped to plant churches and helped to do the work of evangelism. And what we know from his name is that he probably wasn't Jewish, because that was not a common Jewish name. And so what that means is that Luke was a non-Jewish man who had come to believe that Jesus was not just the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the whole of the world. But being a church planter and an evangelist did not pay the bills in the ancient world any more than it pays the bills now. And I can assure you from having friends in church planting, it doesn't pay the bills. And so Luke had a secondary job. He worked uh, in not full-time ministry. He was actually also a doctor. He's referred to as the beloved physician, which means that Luke was trained rigorously, uh, that he was a thoughtful man, he was an academic man, he was a keen discerner of issues in the human life and the human form. And at some point in Luke's life, he decides to turn all of this knowledge that he has towards the task of compiling this two-volume history of the Christian church. He writes these two volumes and addresses them to a man named Theophilus who's a young believer and he says that I've, I've written these things to you so that you might have certainty that the things that you believed are true. Volume one is the gospel according to Luke. Volume two is the book of Acts which we've walked through together as a church in the past. But what you'll notice about the gospel according to Luke is that it mentions Jesus' mother Mary more than any other book in the New Testament. And most people would argue that that's because Luke, in his extensive research for putting this gospel together, spent time sitting down and talking with Mary and asked her, tell me how God brought you into this grand story of Jesus and start from the beginning. And so Luke begins his account of how Mary was swept up in God's story in our text for the morning. Can I read it for us? It's the gospel according to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. It says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. So Luke begins this account by telling us that in the sixth month of the Hebrew calendar, Gabriel the angel is sent from God to a city called Nazareth. It's in the region of Galilee, and so what Luke is doing here is the equivalent of saying the city of Brandon in the county of Hillsborough. And Nazareth, for us, is kind of a common Name. We we've heard that of that city before. There's a, a Scottish rock band in the seventies and the eighties called Nazareth that had some number one singles. Uh, there's a denomination called the Church of the Nazarene. There's seminaries that have been named after this city of Nazareth. If you were to go to the average person on the street, Christian or not, and ask them what is the significance of Nazareth, they may not get all the details right, but they would probably say it has something to do with the Bible. We live in a culture that is steeped in Christianity, whether it recognizes it or not, and so Nazareth is a familiar town to us. But make no mistake, for Luke's readers, and for people in the ancient world, Nazareth was a nowhere nothing town. Everything we know archeologically is that Nazareth is exceptionally small, it's maybe the size of two or three city blocks at most, it's predominantly full of poor farmers and a few carpenters. Most, but not all, of the people in Nazareth are illiterate. It is an unimportant city. It would be as though you were to go to New York, and they were to ask you, well, where are you from? And you were to say, well, I'm from Valrico, or Brandon, or Seffner, or Gibsonton, or Riverview, or Fishhawk. Nobody in the metropolises of the ancient world would have ever heard of Nazareth. And anytime I've talked to somebody in a larger city and I tell them I'm from Brandon, they go, that's nice, is that someone's name? And I say, no, it's where I'm from. But for the people who do know something about Nazareth, the few people who do, it doesn't look like they think very highly of it. When Jesus calls his disciples in the Gospel of John, he issues the call to a man named Philip, and Philip, in his excitement, goes to his friend Nathaniel, and says to him, we have found the Messiah, the one who the prophets have promised. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And in our modern day, it would be the equivalent of going again into the heart of this metropolis like Los Angeles or New York City or Philadelphia and saying the Savior of the world was born. He's from Brandon. And they go, I still don't know where that is. (laughs) So don't miss the significance of what is said even here in the first verse of our text. The triune God chooses to unfold his plan of redemption in a small, humble, insignificant city full of ordinary, boring, unimpressive people. And that is what he has continued to do as his kingdom has gone forth in power, using ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things. Every week we come together around bread and wine or grape juice, technically, And there are ordinary things that you can buy in an ordinary supermarket, but God communicates incredible realities through them. I hate to break it to you, but Carrie Underwood got it wrong. There is nothing in the water of baptism. It is water. But God communicates the earth-shattering reality that people are born again into his kingdom through it. And every single week, ordinary people like myself or Mark or Tom or whoever preaches to you, is given the awesome task of preaching out of an inerrant, infallible, inspired text that God has given us, even though we are ordinary, normal, unimpressive people. But Gabriel is not just sent vaguely to a city. We're told that he's sent to Nazareth, specifically to a virgin in Nazareth, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the Virgin's name was Mary. Uh, There's an account from about 500 years ago during the time of the Reformation, uh, in which a German city, as it was sort of breaking away with the Catholic Church, uh, the peasants in this city sort of worked themselves into this drunken stupor, uh, and in their sort of uh, crazy mob justice, they invaded this cathedral, and they ran out with this wooden statue of Mary, And I don't know if they were serious or not, but they decided to hold a witch trial for the statue. And the standard by which they were going to test it was they were going to throw the wooden statue in the river, and if it floated, it was a witch, and if it sank, it wasn't. And the wooden statue, lo and behold, floated. And so they tried it for witchcraft. Now that's an insane story that sounds like something out of Monty Python's Holy Grail rather than out of the pages of history. But it does underline the fact that, that when we begin to talk about the Virgin Mary, Protestants start to get a little uneasy. They start to shift in their seats. They, they start to feel a little bit uncomfortable, and, and perhaps that's because they have seen the way that the Catholic Church has elevated her to an extent that we would say is above Scripture in some ways. But I want to caution you here that we don't overreact to that and lower her below what Scripture says about her either. Because we need to pay attention to how Gabriel greets her. He says to her that she is a favored one, that the Lord is with her. He goes on to say that she has found favor in the eyes of God. When Mary offers her song of praise later on in the chapter, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary is significant. But by all external appearances, she isn't. She's born in a nothing town called Nazareth. She is a poor Peasant girl. And in this day and age, poor peasant girls often got married very young. She's probably no more than 13 or 14 years old when this visitation happens. One commentator puts it in this way He says, From all indicators, Mary's life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children. Never, never travel further away than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere, by all external appearances, Mary is the least likely candidate to be grafted into the grand plan of redemption. But what we see throughout the pages of Scripture and certainly in the life of Mary is that God is not interested in external appearances, but the content of one's character and their heart. And we see that Mary is no ordinary peasant girl as we watch how she interacts with Gabriel. So the angel comes to her and he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And we're told in verse 29, Mary is greatly troubled at the saying. She tries to discern what sort of greeting this might be. At least two other times in the opening chapters of Luke, an angel, or Gabriel specifically, visits somebody to announce what God is doing in the birth of Christ. You'll remember earlier in this series that we're in that Mark preached through uh, the text where the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds. And we're told that the shepherds are sorely afraid. They're absolutely terrified. That's pretty much the general consensus among people who see angels in the Bible. They're terrified. A couple, uh, couple verses before the text that we're in this morning Mary's relative, Zechariah, is visited by Gabriel and he is abjectly terrified. And he's not a peasant man in a nothing village, he's in Jerusalem in the temple. But notice how Mary responds. We're told that the angel greets her and she is troubled not at the angel's appearance but at what the angel has said. And she tries to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The, the literal translation of this passage says that she was troubled at the saying and she kept pondering in her heart the angel's greeting. This is a woman who is deeply concerned about what the word of the Lord says and what it requires of her. And when the word of the Lord comes to her through the mouth of Gabriel, she doesn't care how he looks, she cares what he says. She is utterly fearless in this circumstance. And for me, this is, this is a wonderful model for those of us who are raising girls. That I pray that you would raise women who look like this, who are fearless and thoughtful and care about the commandments of God and ponder them in their hearts as Mary did when the word of the Lord came to her. For the women in this church, Mary stands as a testament to the fact that you are not second class thinkers or citizens in the kingdom and the plans of God, but that you are utterly significant and capable for all of us. As Christians, Mary serves as a reminder of what we ought to do in this season. For generations, Christians have set aside the Advent and Christmas season to slow down and to begin to think deeply about the earth-shattering reality that sits at the heart of our faith, that God became man. And we would do well, like Mary, to ponder that. And turn it over in our minds as we consider its weighty implications. But in the middle of all of her thinking, the angel snaps her back to reality. He says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Much like Nazareth, Jesus is a term that is freighted with significance for us, because we know all that that name implies and all that that name means. But it's unlikely at this point in her life that Mary would have recognized that, because the name Jesus was not uncommon in her day and age. It means, quite literally, God saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Mary would have had friends who were named Jesus. She would have known people who had named their children Jesus, and so the full force of this title would not have made sense to her initially. It would only have been after Joseph relayed to her what the angel had said to him in his dream, the text that Francis read for us during worship, that she would have begun to discern the weight. It would have been after she had watched him grow up and live a perfect life and never transgress the law of God that she would have begun to discern the weight of that name. It would have been after watching his three years of ministry, where he healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed the leper, that she would have begun to discern the weight of that name. It would have been as she sat at the foot of his cross and heard him cry in triumph and in death, It is finished, that she would have begun to discern the weight. It would have been as she sat on the foothills of the city of Jerusalem and saw him ascend into heaven to the right hand of the throne of God, that she would have begun to make sense of the weight. Luke tells us that she was present with the disciples after the ascension in prayer and as she saw the Holy Spirit poured out in power on the men that her son had appointed, she would have begun to discern the weight so that at the end of her life, as she looked out on the ancient world turned upside down by the life and the death and the resurrection of this child promised to her through Gabriel, she would have been able to say, Jesus is a fitting name. The Lord does indeed save, and he has saved his people through his son. The angel doesn't just tell her what she's going to name the baby. Verse 32, he begins to make some predictions about what sort of baby this will be. And and they're not the sort of predictions that the doctor might make today as far as the gender or the height of your child. In verse 32 he says that this child will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. I wonder in all of our successive tellings of the Christmas story if we might have glanced over the significance of this promise. Because for Mary, as a girl who was steeped in the Jewish scriptures, who had grown up hearing them read aloud week in and week out in her home and in the Jewish worship, this would have been a phrase that was weighty with significance. Because Mary knew well that God had made a promise to David. If you've been in our Old Testament Foundations class, then you've heard of the Davidic covenant. It is this commitment that God makes to David that he will establish his throne forever that his kingdom will have no end, that he will sit an heir to the line of David on the throne for eternity. But David had come and gone. Solomon had come and gone. Israel had been divided. They had been carried off into slavery. The throne of David had been torn down. And now... Mary and everyone she knows is living under Roman occupation and they find themselves asking the question that we so often ask. God has made promises, but is he really going to make good on those promises? Everyone that Mary knows is asking this question, where is the promised son of David? And Gabriel answers, In a resounding voice, he's coming. He's the child that you are going to give birth to. He is the answer to the question of whether God makes good on his promises, which is why Paul can say in Corinthians that Jesus is the one in whom all of God's promises find their yes. If you're familiar with the rest of the Christmas story, you know that sometime later, after Jesus was born, three wise men from the east came to visit him. They stopped by Herod, who was the ruler at the time. They told him that a king had been born. Herod was concerned by this, because he thought that it would be a threat to his power, and so he sought to kill all of the firstborn sons that might be this promised king. Herod was right. A king was born, the true king of the whole of the world. And this is especially important for you and I to hear in the wake of a long and hard election season. Some of us are really excited about the outcome of this election. Others are indifferent, and some of us are deeply concerned. But if you are a Christian in this room, Regardless of who you voted for, you must recognize that every four years we elect a president, not a king. The true king of the whole world was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He cannot be impeached. He cannot be elected. He cannot be overruled. He is wholly true, wholly good, entirely trustworthy, and he will reign. Jesus is called the son of David. And it's not so much that he's like David as it is that David is like him. It's as if if the person of David is the shadow cast by the fullness of the form of Christ. David was a good king. He was rightly revered by the people of Israel. David was a just king. But he was not a perfect king. He was not a flawless king. David made mistakes, David sinned, Jesus does not. And he is the greater David, to whom the original David always pointed to. So in light of this, Mary asks a question. I think it's a reasonable question. She says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Last few years, a lot of progressive voices in Christianity have tried to look at the virgin birth and say that was something that we could have believed 100 years ago, 200 years ago, but but we just know better now that, that virgins don't give birth. And so we can sort of get rid of the virgin birth as long as Jesus died on the cross and rose again. We don't really need this aspect of the Christmas story. I think that's a stupid thing to say. And it it commits this fallacy that that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which is very simply that we think that because we're a little bit further along than history, in history, that everyone who came before us is just a complete idiot. And that's just not true. Mary is an ordinary, possibly illiterate peasant girl from Nazareth, and she knows where babies come from. And she knows she hasn't paid a visit there yet. And so she wants to know where the baby's going to come from. Ancient people knew that virgins don't just give birth. That's why Mary asks the question. Everything you've said about about this child being the son of David and and the promised Messiah sounds great. But I haven't participated in the baby-making process. So how is that going to work? I wonder if we've glossed over Gabriel's answer. He says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary, a Jewish girl steeped in the Old Testament, would have recognized here that Gabriel is using the language of Genesis 1 to answer her question. Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of it. And so when Mary says, how is this going to happen, Gabriel says, the Spirit of God will overshadow you. It's as if to say That the same spirit of God through the power of the word that formed the world and brought it into being and brought about the first creation is now beginning the process of a new creation and it starts with the child in Mary's womb. It's as if to say that here and now, in the middle of a nothing town called Nazareth, in the womb of a peasant girl named Mary, in the midst of an evil age, God is beginning the process of renewing all things. Is it any wonder that in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam? Adam. Because as creation begins with one man and is broken under him, the new creation begins with the man Christ Jesus and will find its restoration through him. And just as the first Adam was brought forth from the dust of the earth by the Spirit of God, the second Adam is brought forth in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam does not where the first Adam falls under a curse and brings all of his descendants down with him, the second Adam is called holy, where the first Adam brings death, the second Adam that is Jesus Christ brings life. It is fitting that we sang in worship before this message, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Mary asks the question, how will this happen? how will this new creation begin? And Gabriel answers the same way the first one started. And at this, Mary's satisfied. And so, she makes this statement. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's a simple statement. It's not very long. It takes up a minuscule percentage of your Bible. But it is a saying that is freighted with significance. Because what Mary has just agreed to is going to cost her everything. She doesn't know how Joseph is going to respond. But in the text in Matthew that we read, we hear that Joseph is a just man, and so he's just going to divorce her quietly. But what Mary knows is that there are laws on the books that say that people who commit adultery are to be put to death. And Mary knows that it's going to be a hard sell to convince everyone that she hasn't cheated on her husband. It's God's baby. And she recognizes that even if they don't put her to death, this agreement that she has just made is going to cost her her friendships. It's going to cost her her reputation. It is absolutely going to cost her her comfort. She agrees, nonetheless. And in Mary, we see this. That God is not so often interested in the wise or the powerful or the wealthy or the well off. But more often than not, he's interested in ordinary, simple, faithful men and women who count the cost and place their trust in him regardless. Ultimately, Mary says that whatever this will cost me, Jesus is better and worth it. And I just wonder, for Mary, she knows almost nothing about what is going to happen in her life. She didn't even get to pick the name, and I'm told parents really like that. But she knows a name, and she knows a few things. She's grasped only the hem of Christ's garment, and yet she says, Jesus is better than whatever I stand to lose. And I just wonder how much more for you and I, who see him, as the greater David, as the true and better Adam, as the greater conqueror than Joshua, leading a greater exodus than Moses, who delivers people from not just slavery to the powers that be, but slavery to sin, as the greater prophet and the greater priest and the greater king, to we who have seen the fullness of who he is, how can we not say with greater clarity, Jesus is better than whatever I stand to lose by following him? In this season, we celebrate that truth. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And whatever it may cost to follow him, he is better. And I pray that as we hurtle towards the Christmas season, you would take time like Mary to slow down, to ponder that earth-shattering reality, to count the cost and to find Jesus worth every penny. Let's pray. Father, you've demonstrated your love for us and that while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. So often we do not take that great gift seriously, but Lord, I pray that in this season, you would stir up our hearts, that we would see Jesus as more beautiful and more desirable than anything that we would put in his place, that we would celebrate with a renewed sense of awe and majesty the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Holy Spirit, where we have failed to see Jesus as more beautiful than the things of this world, convict us and set our eyes on him again. We ask in his name, amen. So we move now into a time of communion together, and I think that's actually really fitting given this season. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that every time we partake of the Lord's table, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And in this season that we have set aside to remember his first coming, it's worthwhile to look forward to his return. So, If you are a Christian in this room, uh, if you are not walking in open and unrepentant sin, not perfectly because nobody does that, Uh, if you are not at odds with somebody in this church or in your Christian life or whatever church you're a part of, we would invite you to take communion with us, to remember Christ's death, and to long for his return. In the next few minutes, the plates are going to be passed out. We're gonna ask you to hold on to the elements as the band continues to lead us in worship and then I'll come back up and we'll take communion together. So the next few minutes are yours to examine yourself. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in this Christmas season, we would be able to declare with greater fullness in our hearts that Jesus is better, that whatever it may cost us to follow him, he is worth it. He is worthy and worthwhile. We thank you that in your kindness and not because of our goodness, you sent your very Son, the greater Adam, the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, the greater David, the wiser Solomon, so that we might have life, that we might know you, that we might be known by you. Lord, help us to ponder these realities as Mary did so long ago. Lord, we ask that you send us into the world as your people who live in a way that brings honor to the worthy and matchless name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask all of this. Amen. Baylife, we'll see you on Christmas Eve next week. Take care. If you have any questions, I'll be in the corner.